Hello. This reading serves for educational purposes only. The book, After the Fact, The Art of Historical Detection, by James West Davidson and Mark Hamilton Lytle, all rights reserved. Chapter 9. The Mirror with a Memory. Is a photograph true to nature itself, or is it possible to lie with a camera? Anyone walking around Manhattan will eventually become aware of Jacob Reese. A housing project and community center bear the name of this reformer who, at the end of the 19th century, fought against the evils of slums and tenements. Alexander Alland, a professional photographer, spent much of his life in the communities of New York where Reese once worked the crime beat as a journalist. Alland knew about Reese as a reformer, but nothing about his pioneering work as a photographer. In 1942, while browsing in a secondhand bookstore, he came across a used copy of How the Other Half Lives, in which Reese used photographs and half-tone illustrations to support his message about the evil conditions of the city's slums. Those images revealed a world of homeless street urchins, crowded tenements, and urban poor struggling to survive. Alan wondered whether there were more of these photographs. He managed to locate Reese's youngest son, Roger William, and asked if he would look through the family's Long Island house to see if his father had left any of his photographic materials behind. A short time later, a box arrived in which Alan found 415 glass plate negatives, 326 slides, and 192 prints. This treasure trove would become the Jacob A. Reese collection of the Museum of the City of New York. What was the significance of the images Roger William Reese discovered in the family attic? Historians already had considerable evidence with which they could reconstruct Reese's life as a journalist and social reformer. He had written books about the slums of New York and an autobiography in which he recollected his life as an immigrant. Now evidence had surfaced that suggested he had made a major contribution to documentary photography as well. Historians were already familiar with the work of Lewis Hine, who, in the early 20th century, captured images of child labor immigrants and urban workers, and the Farm Security Administration photographers who revealed the look of real poverty and the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression. In 1973, Allen published Jacob A. Reese, Photographer and Citizen, which included many photographs not seen in public since Reese used them in his lantern slide shows some 90 years earlier. The book suggested that Reese had importance as a photographer as well as a social reformer. The director of the Department of Photography at New York's Museum of Modern Art suggested that Reese had the photographer's intuitive sense of discovered images. He knew the habits and habitat of a photographer's look, which framed his work. Reese may not have concerned himself with producing art, but he was intuitively interested in problems of form, 
without identifying these as artistic problems. In short, he believed that Reese, no matter how unintentionally, was an artist. For the historian, certain evidence contradicts that claim. If photography was important to Reese, why did he hide his work in the attic without telling his family? A grandson asserted, in his letters, I have read most of them, he never mentions a camera. In fact, in The Making of an American, Reese talks at length about his journalism and writing, yet he says little about his photographs. It was not even a pastime. I had use for it, he explained, and beyond that, I never went. For him, photography was a tool, not an avocation. All the same, Reese the photographer remains important to historians. His images provide an invaluable record of an urban world invisible to most middle-class Americans who, safe in their prosperous neighborhoods, ignored the presence of mass poverty in the rapidly growing cities of late 19th century America. The poor and their troubles were out of sight and hence out of mind. What then can historians learn from this photographic record that more traditional written sources haven't already told them? Can they read Reese's photographs to learn more about life in the teeming cities of late 19th century America? In the 40 years following the Civil War, more than 24 million people flooded into American cities. While the population of the agricultural hinterlands doubled during these years, urban population increased by more than 700%. 16 cities could boast populations of over 50,000 in 1860. By 1910, more than 100 could make that claim. New York City alone grew by 2 million. Urban areas changed not only in size, but also in ethnic composition. While many of the new city dwellers had migrated from rural America, large numbers came from abroad. Most antebellum cities had been relatively homogeneous, with perhaps an enclave of Irish or German immigrants. The metropolises at the turn of the century were home to large groups of southern as well as northern European immigrants. Again, New York City provides a striking example. By 1900, it included the largest Jewish population of any city in the world, as many Irish as in Dublin, and more Italians and Poles than in any city outside Rome or Warsaw. Enclaves of Bohemians, Slavs, Lithuanians, Chinese, Scandinavians, and other nationalities added to the ethnic mix. The quality of living in cities changed too. As industry crowded into city centers, the wealthy and middle classes fled along newly constructed trolley and rail lines to the quiet of developing suburbs. Enterprising realtors either subdivided or replaced the mansions of the rich with tenements in which a maximum number of people could be packed into a minimum of space. Crude sanitation transformed streets into breeding grounds for typhus, scarlet fever, cholera, and other epidemic diseases. Few tenement rooms had outside windows. Less than 10% of all buildings had either indoor plumbing or running water. 
The story of the urban poor and their struggle against the slums' cruel waste of lives is well known today, as it was even at the turn of the century, because several generations of social workers and muckrakers studied the slums firsthand and wrote indignantly about what they found. Not only did they collect statistics to document their general observations, but they compiled numerous case studies that describe the collective experience in compelling stories about individuals. Jacob Rees was a leader in this endeavor. Few books have had as much impact on social policy as his landmark study of New York's Lower East Side, How the Other Half Lives. It was at once a shocking revelation of the conditions of slum life and a call for reform. As urban historian Sam Bass Warner concluded, before Reese, there was no broad understanding of urban poverty that could lead to political action. Reese had come to know firsthand the great degrading conditions of urban life. In 1870, at the age of 21, he joined the growing tide of immigrants who fled the poverty of the Scandinavian countryside for the opportunities offered in America. Reese was no starving peasant. In fact, his father was a respected schoolmaster and his family comfortably middle class. But Jacob had little taste for book learning and preferred manual work as a carpenter. Unable to find a job in his hometown and rejected by his local sweetheart, he set out for the United States. Once there, Reese retraced the pattern that millions of immigrants before him had followed. For three years, he wandered in search of the promise of the new land. He built workers' shacks near Pittsburgh, trapped muskrats in upstate New York, sold furniture, did odd jobs, and occasionally returned to carpentry. In none of that work did he find either satisfaction or success. At one point, poverty reduced him to begging for crumbs outside New York City restaurants and spending nights in a police lodging house. His health failed. He lingered near death until the Danish consul in Philadelphia took him in. At times, his situation grew so desperate and his frustration so intense that he contemplated suicide. Reese, however, had a talent for self-promotion. Eventually, he landed a job with the News Association in New York and turned his talent to reporting. The direction of his career was determined in 1877 when he became the police reporter for the New York Tribune. He was well-suited for the job, his earlier wanderings having made him all too familiar with the seamy side of urban life. The police beat took him to headquarters near the bend, what Reese referred to as the foul core of New York slums. Every day he collected the news that means trouble to someone, the murders, fire, suicides, robberies, and all that sort that don't get into court. Over the course of a year, police dragnets collected some 40,000 indigents who were carted off to the workhouses and asylums. At night, Reese shadowed the police to catch a view of the neighborhood off its guard. He began to visit immigrants in their homes, where he observed their continual struggle to preserve a measure of decency amid disease and poverty. As a Tribune reporter, Reese 
published expose after expose on wretched slum conditions. In doing so, he followed the journalistic style of the day. Most reporters had adopted the strategies found in the Charles Dickens novels Reese had enjoyed as a boy, personifying social issues through the use of graphic detail and telling vignettes. Such concrete examples involved readers most directly with the squalor of city slums. The issue of female exploitation in sweatshops became the story of an old woman Reese discovered paralyzed by a stroke on her own doorstep. The plight of working children who had neither education nor more than a passing familiarity with the English language was dramatized by the story of Pietro, a young Italian boy unable to keep awake at night school. Touching stories brought home the struggles of the poor better than general statistics. They also sold newspapers because middle-class readers found these stories both disturbing and fascinating. But Reese found the newspaper life frustrating. His stories may have been vivid, but apparently not vivid enough to shock anyone to action. For over four decades, New York authorities had made token efforts at slum clearance, but by 1890, the conditions about which Reese protested had grown steadily worse. The Lower East Side had a greater population density than any neighborhood in the world. 335,000 people in one square mile of the 10th Ward, and as many as one person per square foot in the worst places. New York's poor died at a rate much higher than cities elsewhere in the United States and Europe. In frustration, Reese left the Tribune to give lectures and write how the other half lives. He wanted to make a case for reform that even the most callous officials could not dismiss. A full-length book accompanied by public talks was more likely to accomplish what a series of daily articles could not. The new format enabled Reese to weave his individual stories into a broader indictment of urban blight. It allowed him to buttress concrete stories with collections of statistics. And perhaps most important, it inspired him to provide documentary proof of a new sort, proof so vivid and dramatic that even the most compelling literary vignettes seemed weak by comparison. Rees sought to document urban conditions with the swiftly developing techniques of photography. From his own experience and that of other urban reformers, Rees had learned that photographs could be powerful weapons to engage the public imagination. In 1876, over a decade before Rees would publish How the Other Half Lives, he bought a stereopticon or magic lantern that projected pictures onto a screen. With it, he traveled around Brooklyn and Long Island, attracting audiences to his exhibitions of beautiful landscapes in which he mingled advertisements from local merchants. From that experience, he learned that pictures engage the popular imagination in ways the spoken or written word could not. And from the experience of two English authors, John Thompson and Adolf Smith, he learned that photographs could be powerful weapons to arouse popular indignation. Thompson and Smith had included photographs in their 1877 book on London slums because, as they explained, the unquestionable accuracy of this testimony 
will enable us to present true types of the London poor and shield us from accusations of either underrating or exaggerating individual peculiarities of appearance. For Reese, their argument was a compelling one. If photographs accompanied how the other half lives, no corrupt politician could dismiss its arguments as opinionated word paintings spawned by the imagination of an overheated reformer. Photography indisputably showed life as it really was. This will be the end of part one. There will be two more parts to this series.